Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, we read, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In the seventh chapter of Mark, the gospel emphasis has been on internal holiness rather than external hypocrisy. The chapter has taken up the subjects of holiness and healing. Earlier in the chapter, we looked at the healing of a demon-possessed daughter in verses 24 through 30. And now we're privileged to participate in the healing of of a man who was both deaf and dumb in verses 31 through 37. Two large questions are addressed in this chapter. Do the Gentiles defile the Jews in verses 1 through 23? And are the Gentiles less important than the Jews in verses 24 through 37? We begin with the desperation of the handicapped man in verses 31 through 32, and then the declaration of the servant in verses 33 through 37. The passage of Scripture opens to us a model for effective ministry, for true ministry. It includes the elements of prayer in verse 34 at the beginning of the verse, compassion in the middle of verse 34, involvement, verse 33 and 35, and hope at the end of verse 34. You know, it's been almost 20 years since my family and I first came to Denver. We moved here from Albuquerque. I had been working as a pastor there for seven years. Prior to working in Albuquerque as a pastor, I worked for the Department of Social Services for seven years. Four as a caseworker and three as the supervisor of the department. And when we came to the front range, I needed a job. And so I put in applications in a number of different places. And one of the places where I applied was working with people with profound disabilities some were retarded. Others had what was known as alcohol fetal syndrome. It's a condition which causes severe brain damage to young babies whose mothers used alcohol during the course of their pregnancy. Some had different types of mental and emotional um, disorders that made the patient's ability to work and function independently impossible. 
If I was offered and accepted the position, I would have worked in the home as a caregiver. And the position required a college undergraduate degree, which I have, and a working knowledge of counseling, which I have, and human relations, and a comprehensive knowledge of working with people with profound disabilities. The starting pay was $1,200. And I couldn't take the job. If I paid the rent and I paid the utilities and I bought gas and health insurance and lunches for my children and clothes and Cub Scout dues, we simply wouldn't be able to make it. And the people who did work there were caring, dedicated professionals who sacrificed a great deal in order to be there. And I have nothing but respect and admiration for each and every one of them. There is this awkward discomfort in our society with the developmentally disabled and the handicapped. Sometimes we treat people with developmental disabilities as if the disability was some sort of communicable disease. That if we get close to them, their disabilities will become our disabilities. Their handicaps will become our handicaps. Their limitations will become our limitations. And in the days of Jesus... There were no shelters, there were no group homes, there were no government institutions, there was no welfare, there was no Department of Public Social Services, there was no one, no one to help protect them and support them except for their immediate family. For those who have a family member with a profound disability, they understand the pain and the rejection. They understand the discrimination, the isolation. In Jesus' day, it was no different in that respect. People suffered tragedy. Some were blind, some were deaf, some had leprosy, some had speech impairments. And if you had a hearing impairment or if you had a speech impairment, you were fortunate if they just simply thought that you were demon-possessed. Most of the time, they felt that there was a significant problem, so much so that you were drawn outside the circle of friendship and fellowship. Look at verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he, that is Jesus, came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, earlier in the chapter, has been to Tyre and Sidon. And remember, this is the area up the coast of Israel. If you continue to go north in what is now modern-day Lebanon, it's Gentile country. He comes back through Tyre and Sidon to the northern part of the Galilee and then the eastern part of the Galilee to the area called Decapolis. Deca is the Latin word for ten. Polis is the Latin word for city. It was the region that incorporated Damascus, 
Scythopolis and the eastern regions of Gadara and Gedeza. This is an area that is Gentile country. It started off as a Greek colony and then became a Roman colony. And so this is the place where Rome and Greece meet the people of, of the Middle East. And so it was a hodgepodge of Gentiles. And some Bible scholars believe that Jesus spent perhaps as many as eight months in this area, preaching the gospel, healing the sick and the afflicted. As a matter of fact, we're given a clue in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verses 29 through 31, where it says that Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and then went up on a mountain and sat down there. And then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. And they laid them at Jesus' feet. And he healed them. You know, it's really remarkable to me. Jesus deals with the handicapped in ways that you can't imagine. In our culture and society, we enact legislation to protect them. And I'm not suggesting that we not have legislation to protect them. We build handicapped parking spaces. But Jesus doesn't have handicapped parking for camels and donkeys. He doesn't open up a hearing aid shop. He doesn't start hospitals. He heals them. No wonder the text says, That they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech in verse 32. And they begged him, that is, they begged Jesus to put his hand on him. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus not only will heal the man with the severe handicap, he will reach out to him and touch him. And what Jesus does may seem unorthodox to you, but I'm going to suggest to you that you pause for just a moment. Because I'm going to invite you to take off some of the blankets of the passage, I'm going to invite you to see perhaps something that you may have never seen before. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is going to provide a model for ministry, not just a technique, but a set of elements that may help you, that certainly has helped me in ministry. In other words, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus in this passage is giving us an example of the way that he does things. Let's begin by asking a question. What's the ultimate handicap? What's the most profound disability? Do you think it's physical? Do you think it's financial? Do you think it's mental or social or political? What is the ultimate disability? I'm going to suggest to you that it's not physical, it's not financial, it's not cultural, but it is spiritual. The most incredible deficit, the most incredible detriment that people face is that they don't have a right relationship with God by and large. They either do or they don't. And that there's a spiritual problem in the hearts of most people that they have a sin problem. As a matter of fact, Frank Ellis has written, quote, every single one of us is handicapped physically, mentally, socially, 
spiritually to some degree. And although we seldom think about it, the person without faith has a far greater handicap than the person without feet. Our greatest limitation is spiritual. And so we communicate the gospel. We talk about the love of God. We talk about the provision of God in Christ Jesus. This is why the four elements that I want you to focus on just for a moment is the servant's look to heaven. The servant's compassionate sigh. The servant's healing touch. Then the servant's word of hope. And then I'm going to suggest something to you. That there's something about prayer and there's something about compassion and there's something about involvement and there's something about hope that will mark your ministry and make it effective. My hope, my goal is that not only will you experience fresh insight and experience a new power and a new vitality, but it's my hope that you're going to begin to understand something, that it is the presence of Jesus and the power of God and the word of God that creates the mechanism for effective ministry. Jesus has spent months in the Gentile territory. And the very fact that he has spent months there is going to play an important part and an important role in the future. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, they have no idea that he is going to go to Jerusalem, that he is going to die, that he's going to die on a cross and he's going to come back from the dead. They have no idea that in the decades that will follow the death of Jesus, the Roman occupation is going to become greater and the persecution towards the church is going to become greater and the early infant church is going to be smashed and scattered to this particular area. The first Gentile outreach will be Samaria and then the Decapolis. And so Jesus is modeling ministry right from the start. And the fact that this man had a speech impediment and was deaf probably means that he lost his hearing either through accident or disease early in life. And I want you to stop for a moment. And I want you to consider this man's condition. I want you to imagine what it is like to not only not hear sound, but to never hear sound or ever hear sound. There is just silence all the time. Blindness is bad, but the blind can often communicate better than their sighted friends. Rarely are the blind viewed as stupid, not so with the deaf or those with speech impediments. Even our word dumb in our language has come to mean deficit or stupid. The man can't speak. He can't ask for help. 
Not only can he not speak and not only can he not ask, but he has friends that will bring him to Jesus. Don't you see the type in the picture? It becomes a type and a picture of those who can't speak for themselves, who have never heard. They can neither hear and they can't even ask for help. All over the world, there are missionaries who sacrifice to deliver the sounds of the gospel to a world that's waiting to hear the good news. Some people don't have a single page of the Bible written in their language. Some have never heard the gospel presented in their native tongue. Remember, he hears nothing. When I was preparing this message, I came across an article, a survey entitled Unreached, Do Not Ponder Life's Purposes. It was dated December 27th, and it says, and I quote, half of the Americans who do not attend church also do not wonder if there's an ultimate purpose for their lives or the possibility that God has a plan for them, according to a recent survey. Quote, this, this, this study by LifeWay Research surveyed 2,000 adults and found that people with even a slight curiosity about a higher purpose to life are more likely to participate in worship services. About 75% of the adults surveyed indicated that they either agree or strongly agree with the statement, quote, there is an ultimate purpose and a plan for every person's life, unquote. However, 50% of the respondents who never attend worship services disagree with the statement. 50% of the people who never go to church. 50% of the people who never go to church when they were asked the question, how often do you think about your purpose in life? Fully 50% of them said, never. Never. They're out there. You'll get up and you'll walk out the door and you'll go outside and you'll meet with your family and you'll meet with your friends and you'll meet with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and people who are out there. And you know what? They never, they never, ever wonder if their life has meaning, if their life has purpose, if there's some significance to being on this planet. They have no idea that they were created by God in order to have a personal relationship with God. That God sent Jesus into the world to die for their sin and rise from the dead. They have no idea that there's a God who's gone to extraordinary lengths to save them. And in verse 34, look what it says. Then looking up to heaven, Jesus looks to heaven. Now, remember, 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 he has taken this man who is mute and who is deaf and who is aside. He's taken him aside. The man cannot hear. He cannot understand anything. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't use, quote unquote, at first, his supernatural powers to make some sort of mind link. He doesn't go, I'm the creator of the universe and I'm going to now just look into my eyes and I'm going to communicate with you via mental telepathy what I plan to do and what I want to do. That's not how it happens. He begins to look up. And I believe that the glance toward heaven provides at least two things. Jesus is looking to the father to confirm the miracle that's about to take place indicating to the deaf man the source of the servant's power and the source of the deaf man's healing 
He's looking to heaven. And that's where ministry begins. When you look to heaven. When you understand that the supernatural source and the power for ministry is going to take place not from you, but from heaven. It begins with prayer. The model for ministry begins with prayer. Prayer is the first and the last thing when we're dealing with the lost. And so it does begin with prayer. You do have to be able to look at your mom, your dad, your mother, your brother, your sister, your unbelieving family and your unbelieving friends. And you need to pray for them. You need to pray like Paul. Lord, cause the scales to fall from their eyes. Cause The wall that's inside of their heart to open, Lord, give them the ability to see their need for a Savior. The great sin of the church isn't selfishness or materialism, although selfishness and materialism are great sins. There's a greater sin, and it's prayerlessness. The great sin of the church is a refusal to pray. You see, the moment that you pray, you confirm something that you can't, and he can. The moment you pray, you begin to tap into supernatural resources. All the great ministry moments in the life of Jesus began with prayer. He began his ministry with prayer. He selected the apostles with prayer. He prayed. He prayed in the garden. He prays before his crucifixion. Do you understand that if Jesus begins all things with prayer, that should force each and every one of us to our knees? The supernatural favor of God and the supernatural power of God will never, ever show up in my life and my ministry or your life and your ministry without prayer. Do you want to serve? Do you want to minister? Is that what you've been praying? Lord, I want you to use me. I want to be a minister. I want to serve. I want to be used by you. Lord, I want to be used by you in the capacity that you called me with the gifts and callings that you placed on my life. Then you're going to have to pray. And you're going to have to trust God. The scriptures remind us over and over again to pray. And Matthew tells us that Jesus went to the mountain to pray and his disciples never said, teach us to teach or teach us to heal. Or, well, they they didn't say teach us compassion or they, they didn't say, Jesus, teach us to be funny. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Prayer provides power and poise and peace and purpose. Prayer can open and close doors faster than any scheme that human beings can devise. It was D.L. Moody who said that a Christian sees more on his knees than a philosopher does on tiptoe. And I think he's right. Pray as if your life depended on your prayers. And then work As if nothing could be accomplished without your energy. Prayer is never a substitute for hard work. And notice what Jesus does. He sighs. It doesn't look like much in the text. 
But whenever we find Jesus sighing in the text, it's because of his great compassion. In Luke chapter 11, when he discovers that his friend Lazarus is about to die and then going to die, he shows up on the doorstep of Lazarus and there is Mary and there is Martha and they are weeping and crying. Their hearts are broken because their brother is dead. And he asks to be taken to his tomb. And the Bible says that he wept. And then it said, he sighed. It's a description of compassion. Jesus has compassion for the lost and Jesus has compassion for the handicapped and those who are suffering, those who find themselves with a deficiency. Whether the deficiency is mental or emotional or physical or financial or spiritual, someone has described compassion as your pain in my heart. So it's something more than just a motivation. You and I have already talked about the fact that Jesus is not content to simply feel bad for someone or feel sorry for someone. He must help. We are a sentimental people by nature. Sentiment is emotion without commitment. Sentiment is crying at a sad movie. Sentiment is watching every program on the Hallmark Channel. And there's the program, and you know you're going to cry, and then you just let it out. And then you switch the channel. It's emotion without commitment. You turn off the TV. You go on with your life. True compassion is a sign of a truly great and generous heart. Compassion consists of understanding the troubles of others with an urgent desire to help them. We pray and we exercise compassion. Jess Moody wrote, compassion is not a snob gone slumming. Anybody can solve his conscience by an occasional foray into knitting for the spastic home. Did you ever take a trip down inside the broken heart of a friend? To feel the sob of the soul, the raw red crucible of emotional agony, to have this become almost as much yours as that of your soul crushed neighbor, then sit down with him and silently weep. That's the beginning of compassion. It isn't just simply understanding that someone's been diagnosed with cancer and they're about to die. It isn't just simply hearing the news that another marriage is about to go under. It's sitting down and beginning to pray and intercede and have compassion because lives are at risk. He prays. There is compassion. Look again in verse 33. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers in his ears and he spat and he touched his tongue. The servant is willing to pray. He's willing to care. And he's willing to touch in ways that gross you out. I know what some of you are thinking. What did did you just say? Did I just read... 
he spit. And then he took the spit and he put it on his tongue. No, I'm not good with that. I need to help you understand something. I need you to understand that this man can hear nothing. And Jesus is communicating with him. How can I help you understand? When I was preparing this message this week, I was eating. And I broke a tooth off inside of my head. Chewing. The tooth comes out. Fortunately, I didn't swallow it. My wife said, you didn't tell the whole story in the first service. I'll tell the whole story in the second service. You can tease the first service people. I was eating caramel. You know, that chewy, gummy caramel, the delicious caramel. And I'm chewing. And then all of a sudden, my tooth is out. And there it is, lodged in the caramel. So I take it out of the caramel and I put it in a Ziploc bag and I go to the dentist. And I hate the dentist. No, I don't hate him personally. I mean, I hate that I go and I pay someone to torture me. I hate, I can't even begin to tell you how disgusted I am. I don't like people that I love and I deeply care about putting their hands in my mouth. I'm just not good with that. Even when they're wearing latex gloves. But when there's a hole in your head, and the only way that you're going to get it fixed is to have someone put their hand in your mouth, then you have to do what you have to do. And remember, the deaf man can hear nothing. Jesus takes him aside. He's obviously been subject to harassment, isolation, embarrassment, rejection his whole life. And he proceeds to do something strange. He thrusts his fingers into the man's ears. He spits and he touches his tongue. Some have suggested Jesus is communicating with the man. Jesus is explaining what he's about to do for him. Jesus is using sign language. The fingers in the ear. Something is going to happen happen to your ears and I am going to do it the touch of the tongue something is going to happen to your tongue and I am going to do it the spit in the ancient world of the first century many people thought that saliva had medicinal properties he looks into heaven help is going to come from above the sigh I understand and sympathize with what's going on in your life he understands the man's condition And he's going to extraordinary lengths to get the message across. And sometimes that's exactly what you're going to have to do. Someone's going to say to you, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about God, and I don't want to hear about Jesus, and I don't want to hear about the Bible. I don't want to hear about my sinful condition. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So you're going to have to think of winsome ways and welcome ways to speak to people who never get spoken to. 
by sticking his fingers in his ears and his saliva on his tongue. He's explaining and he's touching the untouchable. And by the way, the word touch expresses more than a casual contact when it's in the New Testament. Usually it means to lay hold of or take hold of. When Jesus touches, he takes hold of a person. The pure lays hands on the impure, the clean on the unclean. The touch of Jesus becomes a parable of his incarnation. Jesus is God in the flesh. And this is exactly what Paul understood when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He will touch you. He will heal you. Look what it says in verse 35. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. And he spoke plainly. Jesus must have been aware of this man's overwhelming desire to communicate. Can you imagine living in a world of silence? And wanting so desperately to speak. And you cannot speak. Jesus understands that so perfectly. Because God has gone to extraordinary lengths to speak to you. He understands about the conversations that you've had in silence. Where are you? I need to talk to you. And God wants to talk to you. He wants to speak to you. But your sin has separated you from God. And so he goes to extraordinary lengths to live the life that you could never live and die on the cross for your sin. He goes to this extraordinary length so that a conversation could be had. As a matter of fact, the construction in the original language has the force of he spoke and he kept on speaking. You couldn't shut this guy up. Can you imagine? Be open. The guy can hear, and all of a sudden he goes, Hi there, groovy guys, groovy gals, people love that. Hey, look at me, I'm speaking, and I'm speaking in normal. Look at this, I'm speaking perfect Aramaic, or is he speaking perfect Greek, or is he speaking perfect Hebrew? Whatever language he happens to be speaking, he's speaking it perfectly. He kept speaking, and then he kept on speaking, and you couldn't make him shut up. Max Lucado writes, and I quote, God, motivated by love and directed by divinity, surprises everyone. He becomes a man in an untouchable mystery. He disguises himself as a carpenter and lives in a dusty Judean village, determined to prove his love for his creation. He walks incognito through his own world. His calloused hands touch his wounds and his compassionate tongue touches hearts. He becomes one of us. Have you ever seen such determination? Have you ever witnessed such a desire to communicate, unquote? I have. I've seen people who want so desperately to get their message across. There's prayer. There's compassion. There's touch. But look, there's a word of hope. Look what it says in verse 34. He says, Ifata. It's Aramaic. Be opened. 
As far as we know, these are the first words the former deaf man hears. Not only does the man experience the miracle of hearing, he experiences the miracle of understanding the word's meaning. He's never heard before. One word. Jesus heals the man with one word. He opens his ears with one word. Little keys can often open big locks. And little words can open up big ideas. This is a simple Aramaic word, but it's going to accomplish a very big task. That's what the words of Jesus do, by the way. The moment that Jesus speaks, I love you. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to come into your life. I'm willing to make things different. The moment Jesus says, come to me, you can. The moment that Jesus says, believe in me, you're given an opportunity to do exactly that. The moment that Jesus says, I'll forgive you, it's true. The word of God is powerful and effective. It has the quality of carrying hope. You see, a word is a word is a word. But Jesus can take a word that otherwise would be empty and otherwise meaningless. And then he takes that word and it's filled with hope. Listen to this amazing story. A hardened unbeliever went one day to see but not hear George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a preacher during the time of the Great American Awakening. This is in the early 1700s, like from 1720 on. He was one of the most notable preachers of all time. People have suggested that without George Whitfield, there would never have been an American Revolution. But he goes to hear Whitfield, or not really hear him, but to see him. And in order to have a good vantage point, the man climbs a tree. He climbs a tree and then he puts both fingers in both ears and he just wants to watch him. But then a fly comes by and lights on his nose. And he tries to get it off. He moves one way and the next. He jerks around trying to dislodge the fly, but the fly won't leave. He removes one of his hands to swoosh the fly away. And he hears Whitfield say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And the guy was shocked and surprised. He said, he spoke of the willful refusal of people to hear the Spirit's voice. And he was so impressed. He not only opened his ears to the gospel, but he opened his heart to the gospel. Because that's what the Bible will do. This is the servant's model of ministry. Prayer. Compassion, involvement, hope. You might have read the passage and thought, I could never do what Jesus did. I could never pray for someone and watch them be healed. The truth is you can pray for each and every person. The truth is you can have compassion for each and every person. The truth is you can... Offer touch to each and every person and hope to each and every person. 
Look what it says in verse 36. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Warren Wearsby writes <laughs> that when Jesus told people to be quiet, they talked. And now that Jesus has invited everyone to speak, we seem to be in a world of silence. In verse 37 it says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It really is true, isn't it? Jesus has done all things well. Let me ask you a question. Has he done all things well with you? I want you to pause for just a moment and answer the question. Has Jesus done something for you lately? Has Jesus given you rest for your soul, like it says in Matthew 11? Has Jesus saved you from your sin, like it says in Mark 16? Has Jesus imparted a supernatural peace, which is talked about in John chapter 14, where he says, My peace I give you, not like the peace that the world gives. I'm willing to give you a supernatural peace. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it is a right relationship with God based on love and forgiveness. Clement of Alexandria wrote, he changed sunset into sunrise. That's what the Savior did. Instead of the sun going down, the sun is coming up. Yes, Jesus walked on water which makes it difficult to follow in his footsteps. But he's done all things well. And he stands ready to open up your ears and open up your eyes and open up your heart so you can see the beauty of his salvation and open up your mouth to proclaim the glory of his redemption. But sometimes we're so busy talking that we never take time to listen. Dr. Joe Brown of Rochester, Minnesota, tells of trying to get a physical history from a patient, and the man's wife answered every question that the doctor asked, and finally Dr. Brown requested that she leave the room, but after she left, she found out that the husband could not speak, and calling the wife back, Dr. Brown apologized for not realizing that the man had aphasia, which is a clinical condition which creates a mechanism where there's the loss of speech, where he couldn't speak a word. And the wife was astonished because she didn't know either. I know what you're thinking. How is that? How is that possible? How is it possible? How is it possible that you can live with a person day in and day out? How is it possible that you can eat and sleep with a person day in and day out, but you don't know the condition of their soul? You don't know the condition of their soul. You don't know the condition of their soul. So many people, when I ask them, is your husband saved? Is your wife saved? Are your children saved? And they say, I hope so. And I say, 
if the person closest to you does, doesn't know that you have a right relationship with God, then you probably don't. Do you have a right relationship with God? Have you experienced His love and His mercy and His peace? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that even now. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that if they've never heard you speak, that, Lord, you would unstop the spiritual ears and heart. Lord, I pray that the scales would fall and I pray that they would hear the truth. The truth of their sinful condition and the truth about how you love them so much and the truth about how much you want to save them. And I pray that you would extend the invitation to them, Lord. I pray that they would pray this simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. Lord, I'm shocked and surprised that there's a plan and a purpose for my life. And that includes knowing you and having a friendship with you and and fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray that you would wash me and cleanse me. That you would give me a deep desire to hear the word of God and to know the word of God. Lord, I pray that I could know Jesus in a, in a special way, in a real way, in a personal way, and that I could walk with him all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.